if a couple say, don't be so scared, life is short and we've done well and you know you need to live a little and whatever, they will just blow right past that. But if one person says, hmm, okay, good advice, well, I'll do that. And the other one says, I think, you know, you're just scared to enjoy what we have. Your mother was always a miser. And the couple starts to get polarized right. with one name calling the other. Oh, yeah. You're being a miser. Well, no, you're being extravagant. No, I'm not. I, you know, we have the money. <laughs> and there's, there's very little middle ground. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. That's where money messages can override the reality testing, and it starts to affect the relationship. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. It's my distinct honor to welcome back Dr. Jim Grubman. You hopefully listened to part one of his wonderful interview about families and wealth, but today is part two of conversations about wealth and families. And Dr. Grubman, you've just done so much work to expand our thinking about how families navigate the world of wealth. I'm so happy to continue the conversation. Welcome back. Well, it is great to be back and engaging in this with you, Ed. Uh, it, it's just, uh, we have a lot of common background from psychology and the money part, and it's just nice to be able to take a deep dive into it. Yeah. You know, so we were talking just before I hit record and I was saying, you know, Dr. Grevin, I think a lot of my, uh, my clients, they come to me, they're high income, but not wealthy. And they're kind of stuck on their journey up Mount Everest. And he said, well, okay, maybe that's one way to look at it, but have you thought about it this way? So can we talk about, you know, your lens for understanding the journey into wealth and, and how that can help families listening really understand where are we at in our journey around uh, climbing the, the money Mount Everest, if you will. Sure. Uh, it's very much akin to my metaphor of sort of, you know, coming to the land of wealth, the proverbial land of wealth. And uh, everybody wants to get there, but nobody ever talks about, so what do you do when you are there? And, and when you arrive, how do you uh, live well there? Because Many people are really unprepared for the life that they have when they become wealthy. Um, they bring, you know, we could really beat this metaphor to death and say, you know, the, the pack that they bring with them on their shoulders is full of all sorts of old baggage and, you know, things from their previous life that no longer applies when you're at 30,000 feet. Right. Um, and uh, we could go there. But I think my comment to you just before we started goes back to what I talk about in my book, Strangers in Paradise, that 
draws a lot from cross-cultural psychology and, and social anthropology about understanding wealth as culture, not as class, which has elements of privilege and power and very legitimate things, but sometimes actually can be a, a distract us into too much to focus on that, that um, socioeconomic level is a culture. And when you grow up in uh, working class or middle class culture or right. poverty, um, there's a variety of attitudes and behaviors. And, you know, it's it's a culture like any other culture. Sure. And coming to the land of wealth is it means adapting to a new culture. And right. for a lot of people, that's hard. So. One of the things that I did was I really did a, a dive into cross-cultural psychology, and I was stunned at how much really applies to wealth and wealth in families. One of the things that was very illuminating was the fact that, um, and I, I believe we talked about this in the first uh, podcast, um, there's sort of you know four main ways to handle dealing with the fact that you have moved from the socioeconomic culture of your birth to where you are now. And it's along those two dimensions, the degree to which you keep or leave behind the culture that you came from right. matched to the degree to which you take on or keep away the culture that you are now in. And it makes a two by two sort of field a matrix. Um, and in the book, I talk about the fact that, you know, if you hold on to uh, too much of the culture that you came from, right. and you see wealth as toxic and you, it only is going to hurt the family and whatever, you have what's called the avoidance coping strategy where. Sure. You know, you you pretty much, uh, and we talked about sort of, you know, we're still just middle class people. We just happen to have a lot of money. Right. And to your Everest analogy, it's yeah. like, no, you know, we still live in the plains. The air up here is just really kind of thin and it's pretty cold a lot of the time. But no, we're, we, we haven't moved at all. Right. You know, we're still there. Right, right. You know, um, and then there is the opposite of the what I call the assimilators, because oh. um, it actually relates to cross-cultural psychology, of the people who just see Mount Everest as the best and only place to be, and they quickly leave behind all vestiges of, uh, you know, let's say middle-class life and ideas, sure. and they just want to, they say, oh, we've always lived here. And we are really, you know, we know Mount Everest really well. Okay. And, um, you know, it, it's how we are. Sure. The, the middle ground and kind of what actually in cross-cultural psychology, there's research to show that the long-term outcome is actually the best. Okay. Is what's called an integration yeah. um, approach, which is to kind of take the best of both worlds to remember the good skills and values uh, and grounding that you may have had when money was more scarce 
but to also make reasonable accommodations and to enjoy the benefits of, you know, living living high up a, a little bit and enjoying the view from up there. Right, right. So it's those, you know, uh, strategies that determine how things are going to work out. So when you and I were talking, and it's sort of like, you know, if you're taking an assimilation, assimilation strategy, uh, it's not that you're lost on the way up to Everest. You are bounding up there and right. looking for all those other people who are just really happy to be there right. and think it's great and want to enjoy everything it possibly can uh, you can have. Right. And that's where they want to camp out and live. It's like, you know, that's what they want. And forget that there's any space below the mountain. Forget it. And they forget. And, and you know, the classic example, if we all remember the great Gatsby and, and Jay Gatsby is he actually wiped out his entire history and said, nope, I've always lived here. No, we were born on Everest. Uh, my family's been in Everest from, you know, generations, whatever. And actually turned out he was not. I mean, I guess, you know, almost to some extent, there are some some that are born on Everest, but deny that they're actually up on Everest. They're like, no, no, we're down from the plains. So, I mean, yes, you know, there's, yes. there's some interest, really interesting research about how we identify with, with class and culture. And, you know, I think that's part of what adds to the complexity of this. But for our conversation today, let's assume we're, listen, we're talking to listeners that are trying to figure out their relationship with wealth and their journey into the land of wealth, right? And so, like, you work a lot with people that have arrived in the land of wealth, but in mm-hmm. working with that po- community of folks that actually are on ground zero, past the beaches, into the forest, have established culture, you hear their stories about what it took to be on the boats and leaving the other land to get to Yes, the, yes, the immigrant journey. The yeah. immigrant journey, right? The immigrant journey into the land of wealth. And it's, there's a lot of people that are aspiring and are wanting to get there, but they have some misconceptions about what it takes to actually be there and get there. And so what are some of those misconceptions and, and um, how do the couples navigate that? Well, I think that's really the core of it. And, and for a lot of couples, um, the source of stress in becoming wealthy is around the fact that, you know, one person wants to go over to this side of the mountain where the people are kind of living reasonably and moderately and talking about other things. And the other one is kind of tugging them and saying, no, 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 we want to go to the ones who got the really nice camp and the best tents. And we have to have the greatest view. That's what's important. And, And the other one says, I don't really think so. And, and, you know, and in order to do what you want to do, we need to be spending yeah. a lot right. and not saving much and not managing. You know, you're putting everything into the finest equipment and ignoring the fact that we have other things to use those resources for. And that's where you get sources of conflict within a couple around um, uh, their approach to being wealthy. Um, where one wants to just, you know, enjoy the independence of it as much as possible and all the good things that it, it can bring. 
And the other one is, again, from an integration standpoint, maybe more balanced or more moderate. Uh, is it all right? I'd like to bring this personal because I'm thinking, you know, there's just so many thoughts that are floating around in my head. And you know, look, I'm on this journey into the land of wealth. I'm trying to figure it out. How do I do it well with yep. my wife? Let's talk about um, your wandering in uh, around the land of wealth. Yes. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm awash the shore. Sometimes I, I actually feel like I'm still out in the ocean somewhere trying to get there. And, you know, that's definitional. But I think what's interesting is, you know, as my my wife and I have been married 17 years. We've been busy slowly saving, building her dental practice, building my profession up, our income, building up our assets. But it's just amazing when we sit down and I ask her about, you know, well, where, where do you think our net worth is? Like, it just doesn't even land on her. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, and this is um, not intended to be critical, but to just demonstrate how different our approaches to understanding money are. Is I, I get very focused on the net worth and the growth of the net worth, the growth of the net worth and the investments. And she, stays more focused on the day-to-day cash flow and management. And yet those two things are very closely connected. Well, is it that she is actively not looking at the net worth statement that she prefers to sort of look at the micro level because she's more comfortable there or is she just less interested and, and maybe even trusts you in a way it's complimentary if you handle the big picture and she handles the, the micro, the boots on the ground, that's not a bad combination. I like your, your positive view of it. I think that that would be a healthier way for me to step into <laughs> it. Um, you know, and I'm uh-huh. sure that she would appreciate hearing that. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, and I think what I want listeners to hear is just how easy it is for, for us to frame the way things are going in our head. And then for someone outside of ourselves in this case i get the good fortune of talking with jim about what i'm seeing and you're able to see it differently than i can see it i'm the same story but the way i see my story and the way you see my story is different right and you know you see that the complementary nature of that and and not the kind of pessimistic i have more of the pessimistic well why won't she just look at the net worth i want her to see that and understand that we're on in in we're really by external measure, we're into the land of wealth. I mean, if whatever, absolutely, whatever, yeah, right. If you, but that's I think part of this journey too is there's the external standards that say, well, if you have this level of household income or this net worth, then you're into the land of wealth. Yep. But that doesn't necessarily ring true all the way into our psychological state of mind, does it? Is I mean, I'm sure you've worked with many clients that have tens of millions of dollars that may still feel like they're not actually wealthy. They're not actually in the land of wealth. Well, it's funny because um, some time back I was actually working. I mean, I, at this point, and uh, I've worked with people all over the world. Uh, I work uh, with people in my career from, you know, the proverbial millionaire next door uh, to multi-billionaires yeah. Um, and some families where because of um, what is called a liquidity event where they sell a business or go public or something, um, what was on paper now is much more liquid mm-hmm. wealth. Right. And, and um, I was working with a family 
where uh, they were several years into a liquidity event where they became multi-billionaires, um, including in a way that was public. It, there were there was in the papers and stuff. Uh. And so I was helping them and their um, teenage to young adult children cope with what was going on because for the entire family, I mean, they were still stunned and dealing with the impact of something like that. And so, yes, um, some of them were like, nope, we're, we're, we haven't changed. We're, we're still the same people we are. And uh, I just don't want to think about that. Thinking about it is overwhelming or I don't know what to do with it. And others were, uh, interestingly, no one was pounding the table for spending lots of money on uh, great luxury items. They were very well grounded, but um, they were really struggling with, you know, do I need to look at the big picture? What mm -hmm. do I do when that comes into play? I don't know how to think about it. Um, I'm not sure I really like this. And others were like, you know, I think we need to look at it as something that's manageable and Part of why they retained me was my job is uh, to help them be able to approach it and to adapt to it in a way that finally fits them. So what are some of those kind of, I don't know, exercises that you use with folks to help them start to adapt? Um, you know, and you, you call them integrators, I think is the, and maybe that's a cross-cultural yes. psychological language as well is, but there's what kind of, do you mind sharing like an, a favorite exercise that you use with folks? One of the things um, that I, I have people do is, because uh, as a psychologist, and, and you know this from your own background, um, one of the uh, best ways to approach things that we are anxious about, ranging from, you know, a phobia mm -hmm to just, you know, worries that we have and anxieties that we have about something is what was called a gradual exposure method, which is to start small, imagine a ladder that has different rungs on it. And, uh, you, you know, people think of, oh, well, I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. That'd be way overwhelming. And if you go down the rungs of the ladder, it's like, what would be the first rung on the ladder? How would you just think, simply begin to approach um, in a manageable way at a level where you might feel a little nervous, but it would be doable. You know, uh, it's, it's an anxiety management kind of approach. Yeah. And I have found that a lot with families who feel overwhelmed by or anxious about coping with this yeah. very, you know, strange and for many people, difficult process. I actually have them think of what is the smallest step that you could make? I once was working with a, um, uh, a well-known peer support organization of um, individuals who are millionaires and on up. And they had a, um, they were affiliated with a group that offered fancy vacations, yeah. you know, marketing to this group. Sure. And they were frustrated. They, and they actually came to me and they said, 
we can't get them to buy like expensive vacations and <laughs> they know they have the money. We know they have the money. Why can't they do it? Uh, and uh, I said, you know, and, and it relates like to this family I'm talking about. These are people where if you said, uh, you know, and you can go much stronger than this, here's, here's a vacation that's going to cost you $25,000. Right. And, you know, they propose that to say the parents and the parents, you know, starting off in working class life, maybe will say, are you kidding? Are you crazy? I've never spent $25,000 on a vacation in my life. Right. Not even human, not even cumulatively have I spent $25,000. It's I like, you know, if you added up all the vacations in my life, I took, they wouldn't come to $25,000. It's <laughs> like, forget it. <laughs> right. And, and so I explained to them, I said, it's not a matter of having the money. It's a matter of identity. It's mm -hmm. like, you. Yeah, I mean, imagine if right. I said to your wife, you're going to take a $30,000 vacation and forgetting whether you have the money for that or not. She would probably say what? Fat chance. Yes. Yes. Words like no way in hell come to mind. Yes. I mean, she's far more diplomatic than I am. But yes, the and you know, what's interesting is that is part of this whole, our journey is, you know, we're planning a month long trip to France for the 2024 Olympics and tour de France. We're going to try to do a one, two combo. Oh yeah. And I'll tell you, it's playing a money game on both of us. We've been planning, we've been saving and we, you know, we have our numbers set, but it's like, you start looking at the numbers and you're like, Oh God. Oh my God. Oh God. This is like real. We're actually going to have, we got to put money on the table to make this happen. And, and honestly, I think some of our fear of this, this will be the most expensive trip we've ever done for sure. And it's, yeah, it's, but, it's stretching us. But I think that letter, ladder analogy really helps set a framework because it's, for us, it's a developmental step along our journey of, of yes. the land of wealth is like, cause I can remember being newly married two years in fresh out of being a firefighter. My wife's a dentist. She's making great income. And we're going to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and it's <laughs> you know, right, fifty dollars for a steak, and I'm thinking like, I used oh to cringe God. at twelve dollar hamburgers, let alone a fifty dollars yeah. like. And it's there's that part of you that knows like this is a nice experience, this is a nice place. I you know like this should be good. I should be grateful. And yet, for me, there's this other part. I was like, we're gonna spend one hundred and fifty dollars on right. Food. You know, just even the start, the natural start that comes up, and yet that, I think that's true for so many of us, but we don't have the space to vulnerably talk about it. So here I am on my podcast, sharing all my personal foibles and fears and anxieties around yes, going yeah. into the land of of wealth. But I mean, this is there is a real psychological journey into the land of wealth that we have to take, and it's this latter imagery is so helpful in my mind. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. 
And what's interesting is knowing where you are, not just kind of on the ladder of facing your anxieties, but where you are in managing wealth itself. Because going back to the idea of, you know, the assimilators who want to jump in very quickly, they have no fear. You know, they, they, they oh. take too many risks right. and they're happy to race up the ladder and be spending lots of money when in actuality um, they should be thinking about it a little bit more. Um, and so, you know, the idea of how much, you know, nervousness or gradual adjustment to increasing wealth is sort of normal and maybe even a little good. But what happens where we got onto this is, you know, if your wife is still three rungs down below and saying, you know, spending uh, $12,000 on a vacation is an extravagance and you're ready to spend 28000 for legitimately good. And then we have to add in the other element, which is, and do you have the money? Because, you know, what's the reality basis for where you should be at in these type of expenditures? Well, and I think that that's part, right, that sense of proportionality has to be worked out again, is like, wait, because I have this net worth, my brain says, well, we should be able to afford this level of vacation. Right. But like, can you really? And And that question of affordability, I think we psychologically can fudge that around like we can we can make it work that's where you need in a sense a good financial advisor sometimes to provide that reality check because um there are benchmarks and and this is where i think you know we talked a little bit about financial therapy in the first podcast but i think the idea of psychologists and mental health clinicians forget there is, there are benchmarks. There's a reality basis saying, should you or should you not right. take an expensive vacation to Paris? What's your cash flow? What's your net worth? Right. What's your other spending like? You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of therapists, they only frame it in psychological terms because, you know, that's their bailiwick. And it's like, well, is this a power issue where you have trouble making decisions together? And how do you negotiate and compromise? You know, there's a reality basis. Somebody needs to say, yes, you're fine. And go ahead. And you can, in fact, you know, take two vacations to Paris if you want. And or no, actually, you have been spending enough or you don't have enough net worth. And this is not a good idea. So it's not just you know, who thinks it's okay. Right. What do the numbers say? I really appreciate you naming that. And that's, I think you've spent a lot of time between the two cultures professionally. I have as well. And I'm continuing to wrap my head around. I mean, you talking about culture. Yes. The culture of therapy and what gets normalized as good and healthy is anthema in the business culture in many ways. And the things sometimes, that sometimes, yes, not you know, not always, but sometimes, yeah, it can be, yeah. And in the business world, what gets normalized as good and healthy, in the therapy world, gets anathema to like being healthy, and and so there's these, and so for people that are listening, is like if you feel a little screwball listening to this right now, don't worry, you're okay, you're in good company. <laughs> but you, 
you are receiving different cultural messages and values within these professions about how to organize your information and how you make decisions and what that information means. And so, and neither can see fully the perspective of the other, nor are they really trying to. And that's where it is this mixture. I think you just said that really well. It's a mixture of culture and attitudes and uh, emotional adjustment plus reality testing. Yeah. You know, if, uh, if you grew up, you know, uh, lower middle class with an income in the household of $40,000 a year right. uh, or $30,000 a year, median typical um, income per year now is around 55, 59,000 a year kind of level. Um, and if through success, we're going to take three situations, okay. you know, if through whatever means you as a couple have uh, $5 million or $18 million or $62 million, you know, and we're not even going to go to, you know, $830 million or a couple billion. Right. But let's, we'll just take those three things. If you have, say, five, six million dollars um, and you want to take a spend a lot of money on vacation to Paris, right. you can probably do that. Right. You can't do that often or a lot. But if you're mindful and whatever, you can do that. Sure. If you have 18 million or 62 million, actually, you can do that pretty much whenever you want. Um, if you want to buy, you know, uh, two BMWs or whatever, you can do that. If you want to buy four Lamborghinis, maybe not. Right. So the idea of um, where you are up the mountain uh, makes a difference as to what your options are and good financial, personal management uh, needs to understand the reality of your situation. And I think that that's where having that trusted advisor, therapist, uh, wealth coach, whatever the, the right title is, but someone that can sit outside of you and hold up a mirror and just say, we're going to work on how you feel about this and what you feel like this should do. But we're also going to look at the numbers and, and help you get a sense of proportionality. And, you know, this, you know, when, you know, I was looking at staying in Paris for the Olympics, it's November at the time of this recording, the Olympics are in July. Of course, everything is booked already in Paris. And the only thing that's left are oh, like yeah. $2,500 a night. And, you know, it's like, that is where that proportionality is like, Okay, this is an expensive trip in the grand scheme of things for us and and for our family. But like, there's no way we're swinging twenty five hundred dollars a night for ten nights, which is you know kind of what I was looking yeah. at. And so it's like, okay, we've got to recalibrate expectations. What are we going to do? And that's part of this, I think, openness to adjustment. Um, and it, and I guess it really happens both ways, right? I, you know, there's adjusting into the land of wealth, but the same process is often challenging for people that are leaving the land of wealth for any number of reasons where they've got to kind of recalibrate what's available to them. Yeah. If you don't manage what you're doing very well, you get deported from the land of wealth and they kick you off the mountain and um, you got to go live in the flatlands again. And, and, and that's the thing of 
and what it brings us back to is people need to have skills. Right. It's not just attitudes. It's skills. Because if you grow up with a household income of 35000 a year and you have $5 million, right. you're rich. I mean, you're like seriously rich oh, beyond whatever you would have thought of. But you are not realistically rich enough in the world to be going to Paris and spending that kind of money for 10 days and then also, you know, renovating the house and doing this or whatever, that you're going to burn through that money pretty quick because you don't have the actual money management skills to understand realistically um, what that level of wealth can do for you. And so that's where people get in trouble. Is that, and I think, you know, in my, in my mind, at least that transition from the global middle class where we're dependent on our income to the Mm -hmm. land of wealth where we're dependent on our wealth as a source of income, right? And those are very different things. And it's actually, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Because what you just put your finger on is one of the most important transitions that people have to make in becoming wealthy. And I'll tell you an interesting story there. I, I often use the metaphor, the actually the analogy about you know money as water. Mm-hmm. And in middle-class life, for most people, what you do is you depend on uh, the water that comes out of the faucet for what you need to do uh, to live on. Sure. Um, you know, the paycheck you get, the, you know, the cash flow mm-hmm. income is money. Right. When you start to actually accumulate assets, you start to have sort of the big water tank out in the backyard that is a storage of water. Right. And so you are partly dependent on what comes out of the faucet, but you're much less dependent on that because you have your own store of water that you can tap for when you need it. Mentally making that transition from money as income to money as assets is crucial. And for a lot of people, they do not make that transition. They just see, I have a whole lot more water coming out of the faucet. And so I'm going to spend it. And, and I think this is, wow, so powerful. And I hope that listeners are are enjoying this conversation as I am, is uh, as I was working with another client who is easily in the ultra high net worth space, they were reflecting that, you know, as the larger economic system was shifting, their level of wealth was contracting just the way the wealth was structured, which then had that trickle down effect of like, I've got to change the way that I'm paying for things or how much I'm consuming even at that level. And so I think there's this other myth that like, when I hit a certain level of wealth, I no longer have to pay attention to how much money I have. But Mm -hmm. even at a hundred million dollars, changes in the larger economic system can impact the size of that water tank's ability to flow because you know, there, exactly. there is also that like my standard of living has increased the number of houses, the size of houses, the types of hobbies I'm engaged in have increased and they have a 
a kind of a fixed ongoing expense that you need to meet. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing where if you just say, oh, I have more money, therefore I can spend more. You see money as income and cash flow. And so you start spending money. You can deplete the water tank um, in ways that certainly are unhealthy and unhelpful. The story I wanted to mention is um, many, many years ago, I was teaching a course at Bentley, now it's Bentley University in Boston, on the psychology of financial planning. And one of my students in that course, one of my best students, um, this one particular thing, shifting from thinking of money as what comes out of the faucet to the water tank in the backyard, Um, was so powerful, it literally changed her life um, that she realized, having come from a difficult background, that um, she she had difficulty making that transition and breaking out of the circumstances and the spending habits that she had. And she actually began to save more. She wanted to have that water tank in the backyard that she had never experienced. Mm. And from that moment and that realization, she began to turn things around for herself. And I can say this because it's in the public domain. She talks about it herself. Um, This uh, is Sarah Newcomb, who uh, went on to get a PhD in um, financial planning. And uh, she wrote a book called Loaded. And she works at Morningstar and behavioral finance. And she talks about, you know, the profound impact on her life of how it turned around. And this sort of thing, people, if you do not make that mental leap from money as income to money as assets, uh, it has a huge impact on your ability to actually not only become wealthy, but to maintain wealth. When I think that that really blends into this important concept that I, I find talking with a lot of my clients about is that bridge between your budget and your balance sheet, right? And there's several, yeah. several synonymous terms, but the budget or cash flow statement is all about money in and out. And in middle class life and poverty, that's a really, you know, that's the focus of most financial education or thought. That's it. Is- what comes out of the faucet is pretty much what you're dealing with. Yeah. And you need to track that and organize it. But what they're not taught about is building their balance sheet or their net worth statement. Maybe they learn that they need to have an IRA or a 401k or Roth, and they start to hear some of these words and they, they're trickling money over there, but they're not fully connecting the dots on like, I know this is supposed to help me in my retirement, but I don't quite fully understand how it's going to help me in my retirement. And so part of how it's going to help you in retirement is you're going to turn that into your water tank stream of income in retirement. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, yes. why we need to... Don't tap it now. You're going to need to live on that later on. Right. Yes. We're building the well. We're digging the well. We're trying to fill it up. Yeah. And we need to keep filling it up for as long as possible because you know that next financial concept is that money grows... I want to... I hate saying this, but money grows on itself, the compounding effect, right? But it's like the bigger yeah, the, the compounding base. effect, yeah. And that that financial concept is so paramount and so missed by quite a number of folks. Just the, 
like getting it. Like I remember learning compound about compounding interest in my early twenties. And I, I was like, this is a cool idea. This is amazing. I'm going to do this. And I started putting, you know, we started, I started saving money before I even met my wife into investments. And now 17 years later, I finally feel like I have that like embodied feeling like living the experience of it actually compounding work, that compounding curve that starts to go tip up more and more. And yeah, yeah the hockey stick part. And isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And so I, I share that to say, you know, listeners stay motivated, stay in the game. Don't lose track of like the compounding curve. The best part comes 10, 15, 20 years and beyond. It's not in the first five years. It's not sexy or exciting at all. But you're also talking about psychological aspects, which is, you know, the classic delay of gratification. If you do not have delay of gratification, <laughs> you are not going to make it to that hockey stick part. Uh, and this brings us full circle right. back to couples where one understands what you just said, can delay and whatever. And the other one, um, you know, doesn't really get it and and doesn't want to and when they see that there's more money in the account they see it as more income and you can hear it in the money messages and and it's funny when i have worked with couples i just listen to what they each say because one will be advocating for we're going to need this money (laughs) and the other one will say classic examples uh, that to me are the red flags of the spender, which is, oh, come on, you know, life is short. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen. We need to enjoy this while we're still young um, because, you know, life is short and um, you know, we could save all that money and then get sick and die and, and who's going to get it but our kids. There's all this rationalization of don't count on the future uh, we have it now. Uh, we've earned it. We deserve it. We deserve to have good things. Um, there's a lot of money beliefs that are the hidden drivers of current spending. So you never get to that point um, of having the benefit of the big water tank out in the backyard. Building on this, and I mean, always so many conversation trailheads opening in these conversations as I'm watching I'm like oh I don't want this podcast time to come to an end but it will come to an end I <laughs> promise Jim I, I will not keep you for the next five hours as much as I want to is okay oh, that's all right yeah you know is that the triggering effect of seeing a, a large number in your account whether you know it's checking account investment account I've had so many clients say like we we're doing really great until I saw this number fill in the blank whatever the number is for them doesn't matter but right. it matters to them and it just hits the switches like we're okay now. And then they just go on this spending spree. So I, I don't, that's not everyone, but there's some of us that just like, we're doing fine. And then you see this number and it's like, Yahtzee, I win. Okay. But then, that's right. We're done. We're there. We're there. And then, you know, a year, two years later, they're like, what? The yeah, hell? we were there. What the hell just <laughs> happened to me? So this is, this is something you've seen or heard about too, right? In, in your work with clients? Absolutely. And and a couple of things. One is um, that's where you need a good financial advisor who says, in a sense, if we, if we um, beat this water analogy to death with tanks and pipes and valves and stuff, <laughs> which is the idea of, yes, 
you now have a decent sized tank that is going to be good, but you can open the valve a little. Right. Sometimes right. be mindful of when you do. When you do, remember you're drawing down that tank. Right. And then you need to, you know, uh, live prudently, not, you know, scarcity, but prudently. Right. Other times that be mindful and open that valve know what you're doing, do it to the right degree. And when you've done it, make sure you check on how the tank is doing. And this is again, where psychology comes into play. Because if a couple say, Oh, why are you being so, um, don't be so scared. Life is short. Did I just tell you the part about life is short? (laughs) Um, I'm noticing it. Yes. Yeah. And we've done well. And, you know, you need to live a little and whatever. They will just blow right past that. Um, But if one person says, hmm, okay, good advice. I'll do that. And the other one says, I think, you know, you're just scared to enjoy what we have. Your mother was always a miser. You have her things. And, you, and the couple starts to get polarized right. with one name calling the other. Oh, yeah. You're being a miser. Well, no, you're being extravagant. No, I'm not. I, you know, we have the money. <laughs> and there's, there's very little middle ground. Um, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. Uh, that's where money messages can override the reality testing. Right. Um, and it, it, starts to affect the relationship. I feel like you've been sitting in my office listening to some of my conversations. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about you and your wife on the couch uh, yeah. shortly, yeah. and uh, we'll get her in here oh. and hear what she has to say about some of this stuff. I'm, I'm sure she would add valuable feedback. That uh, Yeah. Anyhow, Jim, it has yeah. been all, such a pleasure to have you back on the show. I mean, we just, I just have such a great time talking with you. I'm sure the listeners enjoy it as well. And you know, this journey into the land of wealth is worth it. But it's not without its challenges. And getting wise counsel is a huge part about landing into the the land of wealth and staying there. And so I appreciate your journey of wisdom and knowledge and being able to help counsel folks. Uh, I certainly have learned a lot from you, and I I trust I'll continue to do so. Well, we'll we'll have to do it again and get your wife in here and uh, talk because it sounds like you guys um, uh, understand different money messages But again, I think the bottom line and why this is so enjoyable to talk about is you need to know both. You need to know the financial reality. You know, uh, do you have the money? Uh, What's a prudent level and way and pattern of spending it? And then the cultural aspects, the money messages, the beliefs and the identity and all of that. And um, you certainly... Uh, demonstrate living at the intersection of both of those. And I think that's why you're so helpful to people. Well, I appreciate your time and thank you for uh, joining me today. Thank you again for having me. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, 
It will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money at... Ed.